ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and friends beyond the binary, and all my patron peeps uh, across the globe, uh, but all of you somehow also within my heart, uh, thank you. Really, thank you uh, so much for supporting the show. Uh, and let's get on with the show. Uh, hey, you all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble getting to sleep, trouble staying asleep. Well, welcome. This is Sleep With Me, the podcast uh, that puts you to sleep. We do it the bedtime story. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights, and press play. I'm going to do the rest. What I'm going to attempt to do is create a safe place where you can set aside whatever's keeping you awake. Uh, whether it's uh, thoughts, uh, feelings, uh, physical sensations, what else, uh, like travel, whatever's keeping you awake. could be anything. could be something I've never listed before, something I haven't experienced but I can relate to because I've had trouble sleeping, and that's why I create this safe place. I smooth it, I pat it, I rub it down. I work very hard, and, I, you know, I'm here with open arms because uh, I'm glad you're here. And the way I do it is I send my voice across the deep, dark night. I use these lulling, soothing, creaky, dulcet tones, pointless meanders, tangents, uh, like a, a, a mugs of tangents. I got uh, tangents. I have a few. I'm just, I can't even get out of this ta- tangent-related tangent. Uh, tangerine tangents. If if they had a flavor, one of one of them would be tangerine. Though I think tangerine, when it's a flavoring, is usually mixed with something else. Uh, but whatever. I'm glad you're here, and I'm here to help you fall asleep. If you're new, here's the structure of the show. Uh, normally, the first six minutes of the show up front are business because it's a sleep podcast, and that's how we keep the show going. And if you're new, not that important. If you're a regular listener, remember when your hand hits the fridge tomorrow, think about, like, uh, think, sleep with me. Am I a patron? Am I supporting the sponsors? Whatever it is. Uh, so it's the first six minutes. Then we're in an intro. I'm thinking I'm going to experiment tonight and try to make a smor- short intro. A smorgasbord. I just almost said smorgasbord instead of short. Uh, and usually, actually, that was an inadvertent metaphor because, uh, so, like, usually these intros are about 12 minutes long and they're attempted at a metaphor about the podcast, which kind of smorgasbord may be correct. What a wonderful word, uh, smorgasbord. Uh, almost, almost wants to say smorgasbord. Borg. Like, you barely, you don't have to worry, like, smorgasbord is very, especially borg. Like, it's the kind of thing you could mutter, and, and you know, like, it uh, doesn't take a lot of effort. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So the intro is like 12 minutes of me metaphorically trying to describe what the podcast is. After 600-something episodes, I'm totally not clear on, uh, I'm still not clear on what, it, what exactly how it works. Uh, I know why it's here. It's to help you, uh, to help you fall asleep, uh, to get a good night's rest, because I feel like you deserve it. And I'm I'm familiar with it. I'm familiar with the smorgasbord of thoughts I have at bedtime. Uh, they just keep coming, and uh, they want to talk to me. They want me to do stuff. They want my attention. Sometimes I can't even rein them in. And I'm also a smorgasbord of other reasons. I can't sometimes, uh, like, uh, lately for me, I think I've talked about it. It's like I could keep waking up. Uh, I don't even got to pee. I just wake up. I say, what the heck? I want to go back to sleep now. 
or not being able to, whatever it is, uh, like, uh, that's why I make the show. I've been there. And uh, I said, well, like, you know what I would like is someone to sit near my bed to keep me company, to be there for me, especially when I couldn't sleep as a kid. That's what I really wanted to just say, hey, I don't even know if I can help you fall asleep, but I'll be here to keep you company because I know how much it sucks. That's really what the, that's the nature, the purpose in the essence of this podcast is I want to be here for you uh, because I know it sucks. Uh, and I think you deserve a good night's sleep. And I'd like to, the weird thing is, I guess after this, I try to take your mind off of it. Uh, when I was a kid, I listened to Dr. Demento, this comedy radio show. And now as an adult, I try different stuff. Uh, <laughs> none of it works. Uh, I've tried, I've tried a lot of stuff for, for me. It, you know, works for some people. And, uh, so I said, well, geez, maybe I could take, maybe I could tell some goofy stories. I have a smorgasbord of, uh, pointless stories in my brain. And that's what I try to do is three times a week. I'm here and talk about three different things. Uh, tonight, it'll be our, uh, ongoing serial ser- or, uh, episodic series, uh, after the glass slipper, you know, Sunday nights are TV show recaps and. Tuesday nights are just one-off stories. Uh, so there's a variety of things to choose from that should distract you. So they say, well, like, uh, just thinking about a smorgasbord, that's kind of a timeless, I guess it isn't timeless because you can't really, I think you could, maybe in the 70s there was still smorgasbords. Doesn't really, I think when the when the invention of signs came out, they said, well, we can't fit, can't fit smorgasbord on a sign. I think in the U.S. it could be traced back to the interstate system. And I think that was uh, Eisenhower, maybe. And they said, well, that was the end of the smorgasbord. I don't know. I don't think Helen listens to the show often, but Helen Z, if you're listening, how about some? How about smorgasbord? That's a nice word. I might have to email. And by the way, check out the Illusionist podcast. Uh, it, 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 like uh, smorgasbord. It's a word that feels good in your head. Like, it does. Like, I don't know if you can... Go ahead and say it with me. You can mumble. It's smorgasbord. It's got a good upper palate vibration for me. And it's kind of comforting. I think, like, it's it's a comforting word about comfort food. Smorgasbord. <laughs> I could say it all day. Uh, but I did promise I'd try to make a short intro. Usually these intros are 12 minutes. And I said, well, let's see if we make a short intro of what happens. Uh... It kind of like testing out thoughts. They say, well, what if I listen to a strange podcast where this man meanders and chatters and doesn't go? And will, will that help me fall asleep? I don't know. That's what I'm here for, though. Oh, also, if you're new, this podcast, you don't really need to listen to it too closely. The stories will kind of make sense, and they'll have a mini, middle beginning and end. Middle, middle, I don't know what a middle is, but... uh I don't know, there won't be, I haven't had any minnow stories with minnows, but, uh, uh, so, so it's a podcast you can kind of listen to, but you don't need to listen to it, but also you're under no pressure to fall asleep. I'll be here. I'll be here for about an hour. I'll be here all the way to the end, uh, in case you can't fall asleep or so you have plenty of time to just drift off, to relax. I put a lot of work into it to keep you company. So if it takes you 40 minutes to drift off, I'll be here. I'll be here talking. I'll be here using my creaky dulcet tones. I'll be here in the deep, dark night for you. 
And I, I say this every intro because I mean it. I'm glad you're here. And I really hope and I really yearn to help you fall asleep uh, or walk you or escort you across the threshold from wake to sleep. Uh, so thanks so much for stopping by. And uh, let's get on with the show. Uh, okay, hey, this is uh, another episode of uh, our uh, procedural. Oh, no, this isn't procedural. It's uh, it's not programmatic. It's episodic and... Um, like, and again, this is just how my brain functions. This is why I can do a sleep podcast. My brain is uh, organizes and it's, uh, it's uh, organ, unorganized, you know, itself. Uh, when it comes to my brain structure, it's constantly re- restructuring and randomizing. Oh, I just had it and then I forgot. Like, I almost had the word. As they said, I always picture a classroom and the things on the top of the shelf. It'll come to me modular. So this is our episodic modular series, meaning you can listen to it in any order after the glass slipper. And it's the tale of kind of what happened after Cinderella became, after the glass slipper. She became princess. She became queen. But our story follows her stepmother, Agatha. We're in our third season. The uh, only thing you need to know about season one and season two, well, I mean, Cinderella's a great queen. But of course, you know, no world is perfect. So she's dealt with, she dealt with her own ups and downs. Agatha became, they got, started to get along. She became a trusted advisor, almost like the hand of the queen. And, um, I mean, she's nothing like Circe, Cinderella. I mean, Agatha has a touch of Circe, but, um, at some point in season two, she became a pit, P-I-T of lentils, L-E-N-T-I-L-S, I believe. Now, don't overthink this one. She's a human. Uh, she has a human consciousness, uh, but she exists as a bit. But that's just a, a fact. You don't. You could picture her as just a regular teacher. She's a teacher this season. But I just want you to know all the facts. She is a pit of lentils, but that's not really that important to the story. So I don't know why I mention it at every opening, because it's super confusing. And then I feel the need to. She's a pit. She's like a swimming pool full of lentils. Uh, but much like if the lentils were also nanobots, uh, she has the ability to kind of move on her own using kind of momentum, gravity, probably. I think she said they have pumps and stuff there. Uh, she can form into a humanoid form and probably express herself. Uh, so to me, I mean, when I'm telling the story, it's seamless. I know her as a pit of lentils, but I also know the deeper soul within her, Agatha, uh, stepmother to Cinderella. I've seen her change over years, and some things stay the same. You know what I'm saying? But uh, so yeah, she's a pit of lentils, not a bit like. Oh, but also, she's a teacher, a co-teacher with a teacher named Shelley. They're teaching the fairy godchildren of uh, the fairy godparents and uh, the descendants, because they've kind of uh, the two cultures, the fairy culture and the human culture of this, wherever it is. Uh, they've merged uh, due to a loss of the fairy kingdom for the most part. And uh, so this is kind of about the the foundational myths of, uh, you know, heroes and stuff of uh, the fairy culture. So that's what the modular series is about, is just a class on that. So this is just another episode with a long uh, setup of uh, After the Glass Slipper. And here's our introducer. Uh, I prefer announcer. Uh, here's our announcer, 
Mr. Big Shot, it's got to happen to... Oh, excuse me. Well, you also have one of those white scarves on that Big Shots wear. And I can tell by how good your hair looks that you drove here from uh, L.A. in a uh, some sort of convertible. You also smell a little bit like uh, money and like uh, maybe wood spice or something. Uh, thank you, my friend. I'll take it from here. This is a lady. This is a gentleman. This is a boy. I did drive here in a convertible. Yes, uh, and I wear a scarf to keep my neck warm. As the ladies is the gentlemen, as the boys is the girls, the friends beyond the binary. East time for another episode of After Sickle's Slipper. Okay, can I take a ride in your convertible? Uh, no, I have someone with me. What about, like, in that little seat in the back? Can I just ride in the back with you for a little while, please? Like, especially with the top down, so people see me with you. Like, just around, just by a couple houses of people that I may or may not have. You know, if we could drive in front of Trader Joe's a few times, and so the Trader Joe's workers see, and they say, is that Antonio Banderas? And who, like, uh, can we just do that, please? Oh, my friend. Uh, let me think about it. All right, after glass slipper, thanks, everybody. Hello, it is I, Agatha. My merch turning to my room. Uh, flowing into it to, to be here with my letter man, who is, yes, my partner, my lover, and my best friend, who takes a nap right after after my office hours. He seems to sleep here. All letter. But all man in my book, but no man. He is, he, he is, uh, he, all letter, no man, but he's my letter man. Uh, that doesn't make any sense, but he's there, he is lying there as I flow into the room. And one of the babies is in here sleeping too. Oh, there's three babies. They, they have taken to bringing me other babies, uh, to talk to. And they said, they said, maybe you're better off. This is what Shelly said, my teaching partner. She said, maybe you're better off teaching with, uh, teaching babies. Uh, and I just, I mean, I didn't even have to say anything. Uh, like, it, it felt too trite to say hilarious, Shelly, because it was not funny. And also, she's a fool because I do uh, calm the babies. That's why they bring them to me to talk to babies. One of them is moving around a bit, uh, still awake, or just waking up, but I will find a way to talk to the babies and to talk to you, my letter man. And also, by the way, not to brag to you babies or to you, uh, letter man. Also, the birds come and listen in, some of them, uh, because it is so uh, hearing about my day. He's uh, good to nap to and relax to in the late uh, afternoon sun. Uh, so in today's class, we moved on a little bit from all the folk tales or the tall tales or the uh, fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale if it's a... I guess it could be. It's still identified that. But we moved into more of the mythology, another myth, mythological tale. And I did interrupt things pretty early on because I said, well, this is interesting that we spend so much time in a class about fairy culture uh, talking about humans. And uh, this is a good because this was going to be a tale of human gods. Uh, 
one or two continents away in like a little bit different, uh, it's very similar. You'll, you'll recognize the themes very quickly. Also, because you three are babies, you will find out very quickly if this is archetypal or not. Uh, I don't need Shelley to tell me these things. But I did need Shelley to explain to me, why are you so obsessed with humans? Uh, and everyone in the class started laughing. And first they were grinning. And as I went on, I said, well, this is another myth about human gods. When are we going to cover the fairy gods? Yeah, because this was about one of the goddess, goddesses uh, of uh, of passion and love and romance, uh, Pheromone, who I am familiar with. The, the charms of Pheromone, the song goes, uh, they, shall they not be phony, it else I'll feel so lonely. I think something, I don't know. One bard tried to sing it to me. I said, get away from me, bard. I'm in love with a letter, by the way. And they said, isn't that a puppet you created? And I said, uh, it is a, sp- never mind, I said. But I said, okay, Shelley, tell it to us. So you're go- we're going to talk about a human goddess of love. That's where we're starting the evening. And she said, yes, yes, yes. And she said, well, we find these uh, is a great example of why humans need our help, your, your gods and goddesses. Uh, and they kept laughing, and someone said, desperately, yes, desperately need our help, uh, and that the fairy people actually believe that are issues. They say, she said issues with the deities, Ish, deity issues or issues with deities. Uh, just a, like either a reflection of our own nature or projection of our ego. I don't know, but something like that. That, uh, they get, you know, the gods are very representative of the, the gods we got, the gods we deserve. And I said, well, I don't, uh, and they said, you mean like Pheromone? Because she sounds like pretty, pretty great. Uh, isn't she the one that everyone loves? And some of the students were presenting this tale that they had gathered. And, uh, you know, I was already distracted because I was confused. So she said, okay, go ahead to children. And said, okay, well, Pheromone was, yes, the goddess of, uh, of all those things and more. And one of the things she was known for in this particular continent, was uh, making trouble for the other gods, a heartache, uh, you know, loinache. Her charms were considered irresistible and creating jealousy among gods and hurt feelings, you know, tears, making gods cry and making them distracted, uh, distractible, using them, using her, you know, getting her way. Yeah, but mostly she she had become she uh, she it was power, and I think some of the gods. Uh, and again, I hate to, analyzing these things now with Shelley in my mind, saying, "Well, this is just an analysis of you." And I say, "Thank you, Shelley." But the gods, the other gods, had grown tired of, be, of, of her behavior, and so they decided uh, to give her like a taste of her own medicine or teach her a lesson. Yeah, but really, it was a chance of like this kind of a, a passive uh, passion, you know, passionate, like where they try to get back at her uh, for not doing what they liked uh, or for making them cry. You know, we'll show you. So they decided to search to find the most normal, mundane human man, run of the mill. Uh, super boring, who could talk forever about nothing. 
a doll who, you know, just like to ramble and go on and on and on over details, meandering tone, never making sense, uh, losing, you know, talking in circles so much that the only people that would listen were his goats. He was a goat herder. They found him. And I know you may be thinking who, who he is, but his name was Enzo. And they said, if you, you know, he was the most ordinary of ordinary men. Uh, and he had a solitary job, he, 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 tending goats and making sure they, you know, would move around as they grazed. I think he wasn't even, a, I think he was a goat gatherer. I don't know if you, he heard goats. Uh, you just gather them to get, I don't know. But he, he was, he would talk to the goats and, you know, the goats would chew and look at him and it would encourage him to go on and on. And so the gods tricked her, and they took her favorite, uh, ha- this uh, gleaming thing that she liked to put in her hair. This is pheromony. And they cast it from the sky to the earth by the goats, and uh, they placed a charm on it that uh, the first human she would see after she touched this uh, would be she would fall in love with them. And, of course, it worked out just like they planned. A lot of these, you know, sometimes she would fall in love with something else, uh, but she went and got her hair thing, and she looked up, and there was Enzo with the goats talking and talking. And she felt herself overcome with desire for him, and uh, she immediately went back and did, put the thing in her hair, and like uh, got ready. And she tried to be she tried to be very seductive, and uh, she said, "Well, hello." You know, they did some talking. Now Enzo, he was very he had been alone for a long time with just goats, and in his pastime, he had been an over talker. So he'd be, in, but he was also introverted. So he would, didn't have very good people skills, and he found this suspicious. And of course, this was a smart, you know, because he said, "Well, who is this beautiful, shockingly beautiful?" He did feel himself stirred with an equal desire for her. And a curiosity, for she had these kind eyes, and she was saying, tell, what is it like to be, what were you talking to the goats about? Uh, so at first he was very nervous and suspicious, but, you know, she quickly said, well, okay, let's ease our way into this in the next 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, and then she said, well, where do you stay? And she said, my, like, uh, you really do uh, have nice... Uh, elbows and he said well no one said you know so she finally really got you know got his guard down and eventually they you know by the way they just kissed you know but but, you know what i mean for for the evening they went back to his camp and uh, they had a few kisses they did exchange they did some necking which i know uh i mean pheromony is known for the nape of her neck to be you know, it has caused many conflicts uh, internationally known that a nape uh, will even cause people to grab a microphone. You know, it's quite the nape. And also her clavicles are unprecedented. I mean, she's a goddess, so it's not like she has human human clavicles. And so they had spent the evening together. And the next day, you know, uh, Enzo couldn't believe it, and he was in love uh, fully, like, uh, totally over, head over heels in love. Uh, and all the other guards were watching from wherever they watched, like Olympic City or whatever. 
and they were listening to him going on and on and and uh and then they said it'd be even more fun if she realizes because she was still like uh wow tell really uh you're trying to make jokes, but you're just talking in circles. That's a t- oh, keep going. And so, oh, I love, let's talk to the goats and everything together. And then the gods decided to make her aware of what was happening slowly, but also to stay in love with him temporarily. So she became aware that, uh, uh she was like, and then they, you know, they spent about a week together. And then the gods released her, and she said, "You," and she said, hey, "Goodbye." And so this is was, uh, and you know, of course, Enzo he was a little bit down, or a little bit more than down, and he found himself, uh, you know, he said, "Well, I've never loved a woman like I did Fermoni," and also, well, we'll talk about that in in a minute, but. Uh, so he was a bit down, and he didn't recover. He he said, well, now I'm done just uh, being regular old boring Enzo. And he said, I must like I have this now thirst for the kiss of pheromone. And it was actually a pretty healthy reaction. He started traveling the world, first with his goats, and then he sold the goats off, and he kept traveling. And he spent his time learning how to interact with people. Uh, to be a good people person, learning how to listen to people like Pheromone, listen to him, uh, learning the art of complimenting, and learning the confidence uh, to talk to people he's attracted to. But he never found the level of attraction that he had for Pheromone, uh, though he did find he quite enjoyed talking to people and helping people and saying, well, uh, you have lovely elbows too. Uh, but he, you know, he never quite got, uh, he never fell in love again for a time. And eventually he traveled the world and he said, enough is enough. Uh, I don't know. And he said, well, I'm going to give Fermoni one last try. So he headed uh, to to a city uh, where the greatest uh, temple of Fermoni was, uh, uh, the Pheromonia, Pheromona, Pheromonian, I think it was called. Uh, and on the hill above the city, uh, at the foot of the hill was the temple, and on the peak of the hill was a giant statue of uh, Pheromone, uh, the largest marble statue uh, known in the kingdom, maybe 15, 20, 20 30 feet. I'm not sure. Quite tall, though. And all of this city worshipped her pheromone primarily. And most of the products were pheromone-related products for people to come. And, you know, none of them worked, of course. But uh, people would go off, go off, make temples to offerings. So he had just rolled into town. He had traveled all night. And at dawn, the hill was in the east. He arrived at the temple and he looked up as the sun rose behind this gleaming yellow-orange uh, uh, giant, uh, you know, thingamajig. And he said, oh, and he saw the outlines. And, and this statue was quite, uh, it was quite similar to when Pheromone took on human form, uh, just much bigger. And he threw himself on the ground, and then he ran up the hill, and he realized it was a statue, but he did not care. And he fell in love with the statue, 
But in a way, I mean, he cared enough to have common decency. Let me tell you that. He didn't do anything weird uh, in, in daylight. Uh, I mean, he is just a strange person anyway. But he became the caretaker of the statue, and he talked to the temple, and he would organize the offerings people left at the statue. First, he just started cleaning the bird, thing, you know, brushing the birds away, and then cleaning up the birds, and then restoring the statue, you know, cleaning it, polishing it, buffing it, waxing it. Uh, and he even started to develop waxes that they would use on other statues of ceremony, and then they began selling this to the wax uh it became a profitable way to uh, help the temple expand. And he, he would talk to the statue, and he lived at the base of the statue. And he would climb the statue and be on her shoulder where he could sit. Uh, and she was in a position where one of her hands was up so he could stand on the hand. And at first people thought he was, because he was always talking to her, saying, well, or singing to her. And in a charming way that people found hilarious, but in a way mostly from afar, they were laughing at him. When they were close, they would be drawn in because he was so happy. They were struck by him. the look on his face was not a madness, but a mad joy. And he would be humming and working or planning and saying, okay, well, these are the offerings, or, you know, however they divvied up the offerings, you know, for people in need. And then for different holidays, they would he would decorate the statue. And the great masquerade day, he would, you know, put a costume on for the visit of Papa Noel, Noel or something. He would dress the statue and for the great candle, candle, candle celebration of the new and the, the dawning of the new calendar, he would you know, cover the statue with candles, and in the you know autumn celebrate all those things. He he was, uh, and people were struck by this, and they said, "This he's so happy," and it was infectious, and and especially at the temple of ceremony, the workers there seemed more happy. And caretaking of uh, statues around this kingdom started to slowly rise as people took pride, not just in pheromone statues, but in other statues. Now, meanwhile, uh, uh, Enzo, a hero, I guess, uh, in pheromone, they had also... uh, Now, Enzo did did, did not quite know this at this point, but uh, he in pheromone... It had a son, Pheromone had a son uh, from the kissing. He burst right out of the nape of her neck in some normal way. Uh, from Now that doesn't happen only with goddesses and humans kissing the nape. Uh, but he was born and he was named Enzo Jr. Yeah, but he I think he was called Nape or something in the god's tongue. And, oh, boy, was this young man a handsome young man. I mean, so handsome, in fact, that, uh, now, again, these, I don't know when this becomes, uh, I don't understand the fairy culture as far as their opinion of humans, uh, because this becomes strange. And I said, is this, the, the God, gods behave in a strange way? Do they think humans behave in this way? Uh, but Enzo Jr. was a handsome lad, and as he grew into a young man, he loved to swim, 
And he had somehow got all the skills that his father had developed and, you know, many things from his mother. He was half human and half God. And at some point he was swimming and he met Bianella, Bianella from the Clam King's kingdom. And she was taken with him and they quickly became, um, you know, dated, dated, if you would use it to that term, uh, more. And, you know, on the side, she was still with the Clam King. Uh, but that was, you know, kind of like a Beauty and the Beast situation. But anyway, she, Bianella was totally smitten with him. And they uh, would spend all the time together on these little, I think you call them trysts. Uh, and word got out to a pheromone. And she also, you know, she tried to gloss over this. But uh, a lot of things that when they, they were talking about this, I think it went over the children's head. But I said, uh, well, why would a mother behave? This is strange. Uh, her handsome son, she was, you know, because she was very irritated that he was dating Bianella, and it wasn't because of ethics or morals. Almost like it was uh, territorial. Uh, like, uh, you know, it's just something strange about it. I think that it was taking it uh, to lower the opinion of human beings or something. I don't know. But she said to Enzo Jr., you won't be with Bianella anymore. Uh, you're my son. And at first he tried rebellion, so then she turned to, like, uh, kind of, like, changing his tastes and his interests uh, and making Bianella seem less uh, interesting, you know, using or tricking him. I don't, I don't know exactly how. I think that's a whole nother story. And then what happened was uh, also she let the Clam King know about it. So the Clam King said, listen, Bianella, I won't be made a fool of. And she said, you're a clam. The king, and he said, "I, you know, because he also the, when the clam king talks, there's a lot of bubbles, uh, but I can't do that." Uh, and so the clam king said, "You know, being that you're grounded, no more going to the surface, except for the thirty-three, you know, the two, the half of the two quarters of the year, you're allowed to go there, and even then, I don't want you talking to this Enzo Junior." And then Bianella was heartbroken, and also Enzo, Enzo Junior, in some sense, had fallen. Uh, had bought into what his mother said, at least at first, and uh, kind of, uh, so she, she, Bianella was down, and, and she took it as an, uh, a slight uh, that pheromone uh, that had turned her, her little love, Enzo Jr., against her. And she swore she would get him, get her back, and uh, and she did her research, and she found out that Enzo Jr. was sons of the Enzo, you know, son of Enzo, so then she found out who this Enzo was, and then she found out he was the famous uh, statue caretaker. And she began to observe his behavior and how, how he had kind of started this movement, the new statue movement, and how people were following his example. And she kind of talked to all the gods. She said, look at all this. Uh, look at how good your statues look uh, this Enzo character has really been doing a great job across this continent now. All of the statues of all the gods look great. Uh, they're all polished. They all have someone organizing, like, uh, you know, this is separate from the temple. This is just outdoor freestanding statues. The statues are safe. They're cared for. We should reward this Enzo, Bianella said. Uh, and she talked to her mother, and her mother spoke. She said, I think this is a great idea. 
really reward this. Uh, look at how he's interacting with that statue. And they, they said, okay, Bianello, you go ahead and reward him. What are you going to do? And he, she said, I'm going to give him what he really wants deep down. And the god said, okay, great. Uh, so Bianella uh, went back and she watched Enzo from Corsa. And it just happened to be right around the Pheromony Festival uh, when, like, Venus would transpose with some other planet or something. And... Uh, uh, she watched him, and as he talked and sang uh, to the statue and kissed its earlobes and slid down the nape of its ne- neck, uh, uh, Bianello was really taken. She said, wow, this man really loves this statue. And she called him over. She, you know, hid herself as like a, you know, like a traveling traveler. And she said, I have word from the gods. They want to reward you with something for your statue and you for your hard work. Uh, and she gave him this jar of oil. And she said, oil the feet of uh, your statue goddess uh, at dawn on the first day, or the, or the last day of the festival, I think it was, because that was when it was most popular. And, and kiss the feet after you oil them. And uh, he said, well, it's tomorrow. And she said, well, do do it, do it. Uh, and then a crowd had gathered uh, because uh, they loved it, especially at dawn. The statue, especially with the wax Enzo uh, had put on it, it really looked good at dawn. And, you know, they would like to see him. You know, when he woke up, he had the most mundane conversations with the statue. So people would get a kick out of it. And, you know, they'd see, well, what is Enzo? You know, he had it covered in flowers for, for the Pheromony Festival. But so this morning he started to rub the oil. And it was a very fragrant, fragrant oil. And the fragrances carried on the wind. And the people were gathered. They were singing songs of Pheromony. People were kissing. You could say, free kisses, you know, free kisses for Pheromony. Uh... You know, you say, some people say, you know, would say yes, and most people would say, no, thank you. It was just blowing kisses, by the way, not lips to lips. Uh, you just forget a free kiss blown to you. you your mind, let a man. Babies, you shouldn't be thinking like this. You're babies. Oh, you're not thinking like this. Good. And then he finished his whole jaw. And, oh, did her feet smell wonderful. I don't know, like, you know, like wood, expensive woods and, uh, you know, uh, you know, deep piney stuff uh, and leather mixed together or something. I don't know. And as he was finishing, he laid a kiss on each of her toes. And as he got to her last pinky toe, you know, in a sandal, of course, uh, he felt something reach down and pick him up, uh, and it was the arm of a pheromony statue, uh, which we call, Hol- they were calling Holy Money, because, uh, uh, you know, obviously it would be confusing if we said pheromony statues, a lot of words, so Holy Money, and she reached him to his lips and kissed him, and her lips were almost the size of his whole body, so, and he said, what? And he looked, and her eyes were open, now, she was still marble, but very liquid marble. Uh, that was a sight to behold. And he almost fainted, and she cradled him, 
And she said, oh, my love, uh, I've been waiting here frozen uh, since you first laid eyes on me and I on you. And the people went crazy, and Bianella started to laugh because uh, she knew she had set her plan in motion. And she was playing a bit of a medium-long game. And the people, they were feverish with this uh and, you know, not to be, to just spend his life with his statue, that wasn't Enzo's style. And immediately everyone that had been caretaking for a statue said, where do I get this oil? So not only was uh, the, this uh, city in the Temple of Pheromone, did they go from very wealthy to unbelievably wealthy. And there were constantly reports of statues coming to life, uh, but none you know, that could be confirmed or disconfirmed ever. Yeah, but Enzo and Feramoni weren't done, you know. I mean, of course, they would, you know, go for walks together. And uh, they developed their own way of, uh, much like me and the letterman, of connecting, Yeah, you know, when one person's a letter and one person's a pit of lentils, it's not as, you know, like they show you, or they don't show you because your parents are embarrassed, but... uh, when you don't have a nape of your neck to kiss, uh, or when your nape is a living marble. Anyway, and not like those statues you see at the foolish festivals with people with powder on them. No, no, no. This was nothing like that. It was like nothing you've ever seen, because it would make your heart quicken. And, oh, did statue-loving, you know, skyrocket. It went from caretaking of statues to constant... uh, praising of statues and of course pheromonies was the most popular her statue so so this was where bianella had the foresight uh that suddenly in this spread beyond this continent to other you know pheromone-esque goddesses uh that would file their complaints with pheromone because people became obsessed with pheromone you know of course mostly with enzo and what did we call her? Uh, Holy Moni. Like, she became her own goddess, but and, and so said, no, no, she's a statue woman. Please don't praise her. Uh, so people said, okay, well, we'll just praise this other statue. And no one stopped, to get, you know, no one cared about Pheromone anymore. They cared about her statues, and they, people would rate, there was, you know, uh, tablets about uh, the top five uh, Pheromone statues to see before you go to the big farm. Uh, underrated, you know, the most underrated pheromony statues of all time. These are the most beautiful locales, you know, pheromony statue hikes, uh, lunch and breakfast, you know, cafes around statues. And the praising of the statues, they, they followed Enzo's lead. So everyone was just nice to the statues, uh, and Pheromone, once she started watching us, she couldn't stop. She said, when the heck, no one did this to me. They always asked me for things and said, make me, make this person love me or whatever. She said, they're just giving things to these statues and polishing them. And they let birds poop on me when back before this. Uh, so she got really, really irritable. And even, you know, even though she was a goddess, her feelings were hurt because she said, well, I'm just unappreciated. Uh, And she huffed and she puffed and she she thought, well, I get rid And she said, you know what, I'm going to show that statue. And so one year later, uh, at the height of the Pheromone Festival, when Enzo and uh, Holy Moni returned, 
they uh, she showed up at the festival, same size as the statue, and no one cared. Again, that was it. That was the line. She said, "What are you doing, praising this statue?" And the humans were like, "What are you, some jealous demigoddess? Uh, this uh, leave uh, Pheromone's favorite statue, holy moly, alone." She became living because of Enzo's love and uh, as a gift from Pheromone. Uh, and she said, "No, no, I'm Pheromone." And no one was having it. And then. She didn't really know what to do because everyone, and also everyone was so happy. That was the thing that really drove her. She said, what a, like, I'll just take away, you know, she said, no one needs my love powers. And she said, well, look at that nape on that neck. That's marble. It's not real. Not even a goddess could get a nape like that, you fools. It's not real proportions. It's not physically possible to, and then the statue did move her neck. And now, meanwhile, Bianello was uh, very amused at this. And while uh, Pheromone was distracted, she went and got Enzo Jr., turned him into a hermit crab, and brought him to the bottom of the sea to live at a side uh, under the nose uh, or uh, top shell of uh, her husband, Clam King. And so uh, when Pheromone got back, uh, Enzo Jr. was gone. And she had had enough, so then she went to the other gods, and she said, are you seeing this? Uh, and the gods hadn't really been aware of it, you know, because they were too busy with god stuff, and the humans aren't so important to them, except when we get on their nerves. But she said, look at these people, like these people are praising the statues. Uh, she goes, they've gone from uh, serving a purpose for actual offerings, you know, to be offered to a symbol of us. Uh, to, uh, like, a symbol, uh, offerings is symbolically offered to a symbol. Actually, well, no, wait a second. She goes, you know, they love the statues and not us. Like, they used to bring offerings, uh, actual offerings, uh, to a symbol of us uh, because they were actually sacrificing for us. Now, uh, she goes, it's reversed. Uh, she goes, this is the, the icons have taken, you know, taken over. And the god said, well, this is between you and Bianella. You know, you're going to need to fix it with her. You're going to need to make things right. And so she went down to Bianella and she said, listen, uh, Clam King, uh, you know, leave us alone, please. Uh, and she said, listen, I got to fix this thing. Uh, and uh, Bianella said, well, what are you offering? And she said, well, I'll let you keep uh, Enzo Jr. What do you have him as a cockle or a shrimp or something? And Bianella laughed, and she said, uh, you're smooth, uh, close. Uh, she goes, if you let me use Enzo Jr. for help, I'll, you know, send him back here to live with you. And Bianella said, okay, deal. So then she turned Enzo, you know, her, uh, uh, Pheromone and Enzo Jr. went to the surface. And Pheromone said to Enzo Jr., look at this. And she showed Enzo Jr., her, her father, galvanting with a statue and singing to a statue. And she goes, your father's loving, loving a statue and kissing a statue in front of crowds of people. She goes, isn't that embarrassing? This is what your father does, uh, humiliates you. Meanwhile, you know, you, you've been cavorting with goddesses. Uh, but down on earth, you're a joke. Uh, no one would care about any Enzo Jr. Because your father's uh, the guy, guy who kisses statues. 
And like all sons, you know, Enzo Jr. had father issues uh, and obviously mother issues, clearly. But uh, he came up with a very crafty solution. With uh, he, he said, well, get, get Bianella here and get the other gods on the same page. Uh, I have a solution. And Pheromone said, well, what is it? And he said, to slowly change the value of marble. You know, he goes, uh, you know, the gods could do it. Uh, in the minds of people and in the actuality, maybe explain to them that uh, it's not the statue. Uh, he goes, you, you know, you'll figure it out, your gods and goddesses, but uh, make marble worth more than anything, and not just a statue of marble, any piece of marble. More than gold, more than diamonds, more than jewels. Uh, make marble the most valuable thing on earth and watch uh, those statues crumble. And I just got to interject here, because I think this is, again, I brought this up as an objection to Shelley to show what humans are really like, uh, because very quickly this happened, and all of the statues started to be taken into pieces uh, by greedy people, uh, and they started cracking pieces of the statue and fighting over the statue or taking statue toes. And chaos erupted, and that, that became, as many people know, the Great Marble Wars, uh, which lasted for hundreds of years. These Marble Wars, uh, it, it, the effects, I think, uh, I think they called it the Marble, I don't know. But anyway, uh, now Enzo, Enzo Sr. was shocked by all this, and of course because uh, of the size and consciousness of... Uh, uh, what is her name? Uh, his his wife. Uh, they did marry. He married a statue. Uh, holy money. He uh, he he was like, I gotta put a stop to this. Uh, now the good thing was, he, like, uh, there's a lot of marble in other places, but you know, quickly all the marble was uh, things, and some people that were still in Enzo's camp, you know, this is a belief system, defended some statues. Uh, and that was the marble, you know, that was the marble part of the marble wars was saying, no, 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 you know, uh, because they, they saw the statues as the gods. But then they quickly realized uh, the futility of W.A.R. being in a marble war anyway. Uh, but Enzo, and I guess in his believers, uh, he didn't really consider himself uh, like a charismatic figure. But he had saw, how can I save these statues, you know, because of the, you know, just to look at. And, of course, I'm uh, in a relationship with the one living statue. And he called the pheromony who sent Enzo Jr. And he said, oh, you're my son. And, they, you know, they didn't really get along. They, like, uh, there was a gulf between them. But Enzo Sr. said, I love this statue. Like, you've loved almost every goddess up there. Uh and I'm your father, police protect this state. You know, I need to figure out a way to stop this. Uh, you know, I just wanted happiness, and the statues brought me happiness. Uh, and I believe that the other statues uh, have been imbued with something, even though they haven't come to life. Uh, and Enzo said, uh, well, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe... Uh, Enzo said, uh, like, he became, he softened, you know, because he's a, a swift young man. He said, okay, well, uh, you know, we could stop the marble thing, but that's going to take forever because there's now there's marble wars and stuff. Uh, but he said, maybe you could protect the statues. You already, he goes, if you did, did vanished, uh, 
you know, that would help the people that believe in you defend the statues even more wholeheartedly. And he goes, I have to think that, he goes, if your statue, uh, Holy Moni, it became conscious, uh, it had to come from somewhere. So you may be right that all statues are imbued with the power. But Enzo Jr. said, I don't know whence that power comes. Uh, you would have to find out, Father. And the father said, how? And he said, well, uh, you'd have to find the source of, from which uh, the statue consciousness arrives. And he said, actually, I spoke to BNL about it because Enzo Jr. Because uh, she said all that oil did was uh, awaken, you know, the connection. And Enzo Sr. said, okay, I've got an idea then. Thank you, son, and I hope you have a wonderful life here. And Enzo Jr. went to Pheromony, and this was the, probably the 10th uh, Pheromony Festival since Holy Moni had come to life. And he said, listen, we're going to go away. And she said, well, how? Uh, and he said, I, I want you to eat me at the height of the festival. Swallow me whole. You know, not eat me, actually. Just swallow me whole. And he said, much like all these tales of going inside, he goes, I'll go inside you. I'll find the source, and you follow me down the source. And I'll see where the source goes, you know, first, but make sure it's good. And she said, I trust you, my husband, my human husband. Uh, she called him Enzi, Enzi Poo. And so at the height of the festival, Enzo kind of explained, you know, the marble wars and our thing is to protect these statues because maybe there's something, particularly the statues that have eyes, you know, we must protect the, what they, uh, they watch over us or... Whether it's symbolically, as you know, Enzo made a great speech, basically, and then was swallowed into his statue wife, and he did find in her belly not just a stomach, of course, because she was a statue, but a cosmic uh, melange or something, where he traveled of all places to the fairy kingdom, and he found that she had arose out of the fairy powerhead or something. And the fairy people welcomed him, and they said, Who are you? He said, Enzo, I'm a human. And they said, Okay, yeah, we were trying to help you. Remember, we were trying to help you, and we were really happy at how you helped others. It seems like your gods and your humanity, you know, you, 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 you people are kind of wrong-headed. We think that's probably the issue, is your head was put on wrong, or they put too many brain cells in there. But the fairy kingdom, this is a whole other story, but they're like, We're down here to help uh and Enzo said, well, can my wife come back with me? And they said, she can. You're welcome to live here. And uh, they said, but what if uh, you leave the channel open? Uh, can you have her leave something behind? And he said, how? And they said, well, she'll take her arm off a statue, swallow that, and she'll come back. She'll be short an arm here in the fairy kingdom with you, but the arm will be, you know, it'll grow out of this uh, melange into the ground as a reed. And Enzo said this, I don't understand it. She said, yeah, you're a human, but then we'll be able to see through all the eyes of the statues of the world to keep an eye on people and know when they need help from a fairy godparents. And Enzo said, that sounds grand. And so he did it and him and his wife, uh, went to live in the fairy kingdom. And I don't know, I don't know what happened after that to them. Or The marble wars eventually petered out as uh, the marble economy. You know, then they said, well, we got all these quarries of marble. What's it good, you know, 
and but the fairies always had a connection. I think that's another saying of like uh, the fairies are always watching uh, to see when you need help. Uh, they never told me this when I was mean to Cinderella, of course. But uh, and they said, "What a day in class! What a day to be a woman!" And to hear a tale of uh, uh, love spanning things. Uh, quite nice, my little man. And the three babies said are here. Hopefully none of you are as precocious as Enzo Jr. Uh, good night.